on the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is Cinematic Sound Radio. And now, here's Tim Burden. Mike Mattesino is with us talking about his uh, very fascinating career. Anyone who has any interest whatsoever in film or film music specifically will know his name. And thanks for your time, Mike. How are you? I'm well. And it's uh, great to be here with you in London. Thank you. Great to have you here on our shores because so much of uh, this music we we know and love has been created here. But look, uh, we're talking about specifically some of the anniversary soundtrack releases which uh, we've been very fortunate to hear and celebrate as of late. And we're going to come to that very soon. But I think it'll be interesting just to hear a little bit about your beginnings, your career and the progression from the video documentary realm to the, the soundtrack specialist art and preserving film music as we know it. Well, that actually all roads point to the sound of music. Okay, right. When it comes to that subject, because when I first got to Los Angeles, uh, I was actually hired by Robert Wise to work with him on doing some archival work, and I ended up doing a documentary on the making of The Sound of Music. And midway through, I got a call from 20th Century Fox saying that they were also going to be restoring the music for the film, and was I interested in working on that? And I said, of course. So they sent me down to the lot, and that is where I met Nick Redman, who was just starting there as the sort of the music archival catalog person and is still doing it 25 years later. And I still work with him and for him, and he uh, co-owns the Twilight Time Blu-ray label, uh, you know, for which we do isolated scores for just about every release. Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah. S-37.
So um, that is where I met him. And it was my introduction to what was going on with catalog archival recording elements. Because I walked into this machine room and I smelled this terrible odor of vinegar. And I asked, what is that? And they said, well, that's the mag. It's deteriorating. And something like the sound of music, which you think is just this sort of permanent fixed thing that the that it's a studio asset and that's never going to go away, was actually in danger of going away. And this, I, I learned that they could get one transfer out of these tapes to an archival format, and then they would have to be incinerated. They were actually toxic. I was astounded. Hmm. And I just immediately felt like I wanted to do something about it and be part of that because I didn't want things to go away. So for the first few years, while I was still making various documentaries and continuing to work for Bob for another seven years, I would do a lot of these soundtrack projects by sort of advising the engineer or by writing things out on paper about what I wanted and or listening to mixes and then approve, you know, approving it or saying, let's redo it and such and such. And I reached a point where I realized it would be better and easier if I just learned how to do this myself and did it myself because then I could really get it right. And so as that process continued, the technology also changed and improved. Certainly as our engineer in the next room can attest who's using some of this miraculous hardware and software right now, it came a long way. And suddenly things that were unreleasable and unsalvageable started to become the opposite. But it really all began with The Sound of Music. So by the time we got to 2000, 2001, I was doing these all myself and found that it came very easy to me and that I just knew what I was listening for. And I started to get a little bit courageous talking with other engineers who, you know, to my surprise, told me that just... There's no rules. You just experiment. If it sounds right to you, you just go with it. Mm. And so it, it just keeps, it's a constant process of exploring and experimenting and increasing your courage where you know that something can either exist or not exist. And if you work hard enough at it, you can save it and, and get it out there. And then there it is. And sometimes the finished product sounds like it's effortless, even though lots of work went into it. Um, and it's just, it's just a passion. It's just, uh, you know, I don't want the things to go away. And, um, when we have a project come along and material is liberated that maybe nobody's listened to or put up for 30 or 40 years, my attitude has always been that this could be the one and only time someone gets to work with it. So let's get it right. Mm. And that's just sort of how I've proceeded. And I've been very fortunate that the work has just come to me, that there's been enough of it and enough interest to just uh, keep it going and then have now found myself in the position of doing a lot of uh, projects that I grew up with and care about passionately. Yes. And I'm able to sort of give back to it is how I look at it. You're sharing that passion. Yeah, very much so. And in the, the minds are, are thinking alike to, to use that cliche, but it's, it's so true because it's being embraced by the film music world, or whether you call it the the, the world of specialist um, music fans, There's, it has different terminologies. But you know, you are held in such high regard, so it's a credit to to your work, and obviously in the industry, you're held in such high regard too, which is which is why you get uh, you get asked to do these big assignments. 
be interesting to backtrack slightly to the special editions of Star Wars in 1997, the RCA Victor releases, which um, were wonderfully produced, uh, lovely, you know, the CDs and the, the booklets. You wrote the liner notes, and uh, I, I guess that was a, a massive treat for you to be involved in because all that music, you, you had access to that, that music. and This is true. I had heard some of it a little bit prior to that because, again, Nick Redman had done this four-CD box set in 1993 mm, with Lucas, yeah, for the Arista label, and I was not involved in that. I had some peripheral involvement, but it was sort of done by Nick and Lucas Kendall, and um, and it was certainly good and groundbreaking, and an example of what Nick was trying to accomplish at the time in his early days at 20th Century Fox, and then through various boring details about the rights to the Star Wars music, it ended up. A possibility opened up to do them again with RCA Victor and expand them further. Even though it was just four years later, there were these 20th anniversary special edition theatrical reissues to tie them to. But there's a great example of projects where I kind of just advised. I was able to just sort of explain on paper how I wanted to program these things, but did not really have the authority to definitively work things to a state of perfection by today's standards and certainly by my own standards. When I look back on that, I feel like it was kind of done by an idiot. But assembly-wise, I was happy enough with them, but there were other people involved in saying this, that, or the other about, you know, what what should be done with them. But they were tremendously successful. And of course, uh, those came out in a world where we still had all the brick and mortar stores and Tower Records, Virgin Records. That's all right. That. Yeah. The, the first Star Wars, A New Hope, I think sold 25,000 copies on its first day, physical copies in stores. Right. And I don't know that any album now can do that. Um, certainly no soundtrack, maybe not even Star Wars, if we were to redo it, which mm. I hope to someday get to redo. But I mean, it, you know, it was um, something that came out at sort of the peak of the CD era. They all charted on Billboard. Um, so it was a very, very proud moment. And, you know, Nick had a gold record made 
for me of it when it oh, went gold. Oh, nice. And uh, I was very, very proud. And subsequently, I, I was involved in publishing some of the new sheet music and then in the first Star Wars concert that they did that was a sort of a compilation of all the scores. You know, and as you, as you said, got to write the notes. So that was a very big, big stepping stone. Mm. But it was certainly on part of this process of getting to the point where I felt like I wanted to be able to just do this myself. Because one of the things going on then is that you would get sort of a live mix. We were still, it seems antiquated now looking back. Our refs to listen to these things were cassette in 97. We weren't even burning CDRs to go home and listen to. We were oh, really? making cassettes and I would play them in the car on the way home. <laughs> and then you go back to the next week and you and you say, well, let's, can we redo that cue and maybe do this adjustment in the mix or this adjustment in the edit? None of it was really mathematical like it is now where I could go in and really make sure something matches precisely to what the movie did or what an original album did or to hear a noise and remove it and just really perfect it. You know, that all came later. That all just came in the 2000s. It just was sort of suddenly upon us. You know, I just kind of used sort of the gift of my ear to bring to it. But I've always said that the real geniuses are the people who actually design these computer software programs, which are amazing. I mean, so how do you actually program, you know, a piece of computer software to understand audio and to manipulate it and do things to it. That just amazes me. So I, I know how to use it, but I wouldn't know the first thing about designing it. Those are the real geniuses, these mm. uh, computer programmers that design these softwares. It, it just, it, it, it opened up a whole world of possibilities. And as I said, we had certainly just at 20th Century Fox alone, we had scores in the 90s, which we would listen to which were falling apart, full of wow, full of flutter, dropouts. And then suddenly things changed where we could actually work with it and get it into a releasable state. It was just astounding. So when you say that, are we referring to DAT tapes? That, that was the, the 1990s and 80s, wasn't it, DAT tapes? Is that right? I remember listening to DATs like at the mastering house. I would sit there with headphones, listen to reference DATs, but I couldn't take them home yet. <laughs> I, was, I had, would have cassettes made. Right. So it, we gradually got there. We gradually got to DATS, D88s, and we all thought that was also great. And then we just bypassed that entirely and started listening to files. Meanwhile, the whole world started buying music as just files and no physical media. So you know, that, that we just saw that whole change just sort of, you know, unfolding. And uh, I think we reached, in terms of the major labels, Doing a score like that was with the first version of Superman I did, which was 2000 through the Rhino label. Oh, the Rhino, yes. Which yeah. they did because of the success of Star Wars. And that also charted, and that was sort of the pinnacle of that whole era. Then we switched over to the specialty labels, and maybe then the second time I did Superman with the box set in 2008 was sort of the pinnacle of the specialized soundtrack label market, where that just was a huge, huge event in that whole universe. Yeah. Um, Two pressings. Yes, and then it's just been sort of um, doing what we can since then to uh, keep a hold on it and uh, keep the scores coming and keep trying to find ways of uh, letting people know that this great music exists. It'll be interesting, before we talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. the Extraterrestrial, it'll be interesting, I think, to, I suppose, get a holding on, on the 
inception of the projects and the the, the pitfalls and the uh, the positives and you know as as a producer and to try and get this this music released you mentioned earlier that there can be a lot of um well i suppose politics and you can go through a lot of things to get a certain finished product so how how what do you find is the most challenging thing for getting your best vision of of a, of a release out there I, I don't know. I mean, it you have a you have the different labels who are the ones who make these deals initially. Mm. Um, you know, the La La Lands, the Entradas, the Verez Sarabans, you know, all of whom I work for. With the John Williams releases, it now starts with me going to his representatives and discussing it and then getting his okay to proceed. And more often than not, he's fine with it as long as we don't try to do too many things at once. So that's basically where it starts. And then all they ask is that, you know, they are able to listen, that he could approve the master, the, the liner notes, the design, that they are involved in the whole process. Mm. So uh, it's gotten pretty easy. Um, you know, if you want to know about these two particularly, we knew that the anniversaries were coming. E.T. was actually the one that I heard about first, and it was with uh, Universal Music Group approaching John's people with the desire to do something for the 35th anniversary and uh, for which they were going to engage me to do. And that went on for a period of months and nothing was happening and I was waiting to hear about it. And finally was told that for just internal reasons within the company, they were not able to do it. But by that point, John was expecting it uh, Steven Spielberg's people were expecting it as being part of the 35th anniversary activity. We had just come out with the Jurassic Park collection on La La Land. And they said, well, we can do E.T. with them, just follow the same model. Would that be okay? And I said, well, it certainly would be okay with me. I know it would be okay with them. So that's how it became a La La Land project. And my desire on that was to involve Bruce Botnick, who was the digital recordist originally for the sessions and the producer with John of the original album mm -hmm. and to uh, basically work on it the same way we did Star Trek the motion picture which was to get the earliest possible generation of material transfer it at super high resolution and uh, work together on it to make it the cleanest and most perfected version of uh, scores we possibly could and uh, but that took time Maybe uh, we, we did two or three masters until John was happy with it, and the program changed this way and that way slightly. And I undertook the search for an album master, which we ended up finding here in London. Right. And um, because they'd all disappeared, we suspected it was a lot of the material went up in the Universal Studios fire in 2008. And the other thing I was uh, wanting to find was the theme park ride music. Yeah. And uh, that was a, that ended up being a fascinating story about how we finally found that. <laughs> so It's a great addition to the release, that, because obviously, apart from the fact it's not released until now, it's, uh, it's a great, it's a wonderful, you know, excuse to hear. There's, you know, the cool kind of theme is in there, but there's such lovely new material, which... Obviously, Universal Studios uh, engaged him to write for this this new ride. Mm -hmm. what, what when was the ride uh, open? Was it soon after the film's release? No, it was later. It was nineteen ninety. Okay, right. 
So, and I think they, the first one was in LA and then they opened it in Orlando and then Japan. Right. But so we knew that uh, it existed. There had been a pretty bad sounding version floating around out there from the late nineties or so. And people knew it existed, but the question was where was the actual master recording and could we find it? And when I asked about it at Universal, they, nothing came up in the traditional search at all. It just wasn't showing up. They just, the, the records just weren't there. And so I said, well, we know the ride is still running in Florida. I says, I'll fly to Florida and go into a control room with a thumb drive if I have to. But then uh, someone told me that they'd been to Florida the previous summer and that the music wasn't playing there anymore. It had been replaced with something from the album. I said, well, uh-oh, but we know the music exists. So then just out of nowhere, I suddenly remembered that I had a friend in the 80s uh, who I had not talked to in ages, but he moved to Florida with his family. And as I recall, he worked for Universal Studios down there. And I thought, well, let me see if I could find him and reach out to him. So I go on the internet and I find him. And uh, when I, sure enough, he worked for the, for the theme park down there. And when I saw what he did, he was one of the top IT guys for the park. Oh, handy. So I, so I uh, contacted him and I said, look, all of our standard search methods have turned up nothing. Can you suggest anything? And he said, well, I know everybody who runs the rides. You know, let me go look into it. I'll talk to them. And just about a, two days later, he comes back to me, emails me a barcode number and a name of a person at the studio to contact. It was a name I didn't recognize. So I called the person I usually dealt with and he said, oh, yes, I know him. He's actually the head, you know, uh, kind of my boss. So, but give me the barcode number. And I gave it to him and he looked it up and it came up as saying ET Ride Japan. And it was one of seven boxes. And he said, I'll have this box here this afternoon. I'll call you when it's here. So I went over and we went through it and there are videos from the ride and the intro. And then sure enough, down buried in the box was one quarter inch tape and it said uh, Botanicus theme on it and there it was. Right. So that was it. So because <laughs> I had some friend from the 80s, that's how I found it. <laughs> so well, it's it, just one of those strange, strange things. It's like, you know, if it, it, did anybody else doing this project, that wouldn't have happened. That's incredible. Well, here, I mean, it, it's worked out so well. And, you know, on, on, on the ET soundtrack, it's actually, I mean, it's the first track of the additional music, which is, you know, so appropriate. They called the ET adventure just after the original soundtrack album to go back a little bit on to bruce botnick i think it's important to state how his contribution to that album is, is so significant isn't it i mean it's such a wonderfully recorded album and it's it's crisp and i mean i think anyone i've ever spoken to about that album john williams music sounds particularly good doesn't it it does yeah that just was a great album and well uh, worthy of going gold and winning a Grammy. Mm. Bruce and John worked together with and came up with just the right program. And John, of course, recorded sort of album presentations of the main themes from the film. And, uh, you know, Flying became its own best-selling single and, and won its That's own right. Grammy. And uh, But then the, the, the remarkable thing was that when we went looking for the master for that soundtrack, it just was not to be found. And again, so a Grammy-winning album at 
one moment in time did not exist anywhere in the United States except on compact discs pressed in the 80s. And so the digital masters could not be found. And uh, I was told by Universal Music Group to check all the territories, meaning England, Germany, Japan. So I started with uh, with um, DECA here in the UK, and they found the quarter-inch tape. And Bruce feels that by doing a high-resolution transfer of this analog tape, from which all of the records and cassettes would have been made originally, um, that we actually have higher quality than if we had found the original digital element, which would have been limited to the standards of the day. Very, very right. early, early digital format. Um, could not possibly sound better than a CD made at the time would be. So we actually were able to uh, give it a slight improvement and then make another CD of just that, which ended up inside the gift set that Universal Home Entertainment put out. That's right. That's right. So, yes, yes. So it was a way of getting that original album out there, which was lost, but nobody realized it was lost. <laughs> so, And it's a great program. And so it's just nice to finally have what a lot of people have been wanting, which was the complete score and the original album and alternates and extras all in, under one roof, as it were. Now, a couple of the alternates were released in 2002, whenever the, the 20th anniversary CD was released. Now, I know that... Correct. Is it correct to say Sean Murphy did that one? Is that right? Sean Murphy did produce that one, yes. So he also did an SACD of it. That's right. So. Yeah, which I never heard. Uh, is it is it as good as I would imagine it is? It is good. Yeah. 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 Uh, ET was recorded as live mix, live four channel mix. So there was no multi track to go back to. Right. The mix was the mix. They captured it, and uh, so there wasn't too much really to do to it. So uh, other than getting the assembly precisely right, which they didn't in 2002, but we have done now. Well, that was going to be my question. Yes. I mean, was was it intended to put the alternate takes on that release or was it a, an actual mistake or is it just one of these things which nobody knows? Well, again, in 2002, remembering what I was doing at the time, which relatively speaking, feels like the dark ages to me. This was, <laughs> this was before we actually started really doing things like sampling the entire movie in to our Pro Tools sessions okay. and lining up the music and listening to it as I do when I'm uh, getting these performances right, put headphones on, pan the movie to one ear and the music to the other and get it to phase. And when you uh, have nothing to go on but the audio you can tell then where the performance changes and then you go search the other takes and find what they changed to and you recreate all those performance edits. So, you know, I just don't think in the early 2000s we were quite there yet with being that precise. And I don't know that have any meaning to the average person, mm. but sometimes there's a subconscious thing, especially with something like E.T., where it's possible you know the film very well and have seen it 30 or 40 times, and subconsciously you might just sense that something's a little bit different or the timing's a little bit off. And uh, when you hear it correctly, there's something inside you that tells you it's correct and it's exactly what you hear in the film. Mm. So I think it's just a, it's just a matter of the, the evolution of the process. There had also been a 1996 version, which had even some other differences of performances. And, yes, that's uh, right. It was released. I it was just over. Actually, just released in America. Right, well, right. It was. It was one of those ones where I remember spending like thirty quid on a 
Virgin Import, whatever it was, because um, I think yeah, it was just released on MCA over in the States. Mm-hmm. It was nice, though. Yes, it was a nice CD. I've forgotten that. Actually. And it's a lot to ask of yeah. people of uh, these the loyal fan base to keep buying something over and over. All of us who work on these things, it's been a learning process for all of us. I feel like I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm going to get it right. You know, I can't see there's going to be a need to do uh, E.T. or Close Encounters or Jurassic Park again. I mean, mm. we, we did it. We got it right. So it, it sometimes takes a few few tries. And uh, it, this is just my own working methodology is that I will go in and just literally reverse engineer it and make sure that it's absolutely correct. Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs>
in a, another couple of highlights on the new ET CD, I think it's certainly worth noting the alternates of ET alone. You know, the you have the the tuba at the start of the cue, and then later on there's a completely different trumpet passages, which are very different from the final you know film version and album version. Which uh, I guess when you heard for the first time, I mean, it must have been so interesting because it's amazing how just that that slight slight alternate just changes the whole piece, but in in a very good way. Well, Bruce came to the lot, and we went into uh, the sound transfer department and to inspect these tapes of 35 millimeter mag, and saw that this one complete set was totally uncut, and because they ran two. So Kenny Hall, the music editor, would cut one, and then there was another one that was just sort of the backup in case it was needed, but it was left untouched. So that's what we worked with. And we just sort of randomly picked a reel to put up just to see what the quality was and the condition was. And that was the first thing we heard. Right. It was the ending of that. I'm like, what is this? And I'm like, oh my <laughs> God, we already have an alternate that we didn't know about. Yeah. And... The interesting thing about this, somebody wrote me who knew about what the original manuscript titles were, which can sometimes be very weird. You know, things are written on the sheet music that only have meaning to the composer and the orchestrators. Okay. And the ending that we know of that cue actually was called The Final Solution. Oh. It was a very, very odd, sort of ominous title. And you wonder, what the heck does that mean? Well, that's because they kept coming back to that cue. They actually did it three different times. Oh, I see. The second time, they got closer to what we know from the film, mm -hmm. but it just wasn't performed exactly right. Okay. So then the third time he came back to it, they made a few little slight adjustments in instrumentation, and he called it the final solution because, you know, meaning that we were tired of doing it, we're finally going to solve how this cue <laughs> should go. It was version one was that had this alternate fanfare for the spaceship lifting off, which is very, very different. Yeah. It is. And, uh, but it was the first thing we heard when we put the tapes up. So it's like we instantly knew that we had a, a great project here and who knows what else we might find. Thank you. 
Yes, and there's a couple more, wasn't there? Because you had the, the departure or Adventures on Earth, as many of us know it as, as well as hearing The Kiss for the first time, which is that's an interesting, uh, I don't know, what, four, six-second intro, which I, I don't recall being in the film, but is it in the film? It is in the film, but it's mixed as if to sound like it's coming from the television. Oh, right. Similar to Close from Encounters. The, from The Quiet Man. Okay, yes. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, like, right. it's like that, and then... Uh, you know, it goes from this sort of diegetic sound and the orchestra picks up the quiet man theme, yes. the Victor Young music, and then mm -hmm. kind of morphs it into the chord of the E.T. theme yeah, very, very cleverly. So. Very clever. So it was that. So I knew that it existed, but uh, you know, nobody had ever heard it before. Even mm. on the uh, Laserdisc from 1996, where there was an isolated score track, that little bit was not not on there. The rights issue? No, I don't think so. No. For whatever reason, it just uh, was not found or not included. Again, you know, 1996. I mean, you know, I'm remembering what I was doing in 1996, and it's just that you were at the mercy of other engineers <laughs> playing you things, and uh, you know, and you're. Spending a lot of studio time, you know, expensive studio time hourly. Yeah. You know, we would do this at, at a room at Fox that's no longer a, a dubbing stage, but we would do it there. It's like when we were doing Star Wars, we were on the same dubbing stage where they were pounding on the door with Independence Day trying to get in there to dub. You know, it's like <laughs> and so you're paying this hourly rate for the expensive dubbing stages. Well, just a few years later, everybody seemed to have a little project studio in their house. And, uh, and well, now I could work and work and work at it until it's right. And it's my own time to spend, you know, as long as I'm paid fairly for the project, I'm happy to do it to make sure it's right. But when you're actually at a studio where the major feature films and, and, and union guys are coming in and it's like, uh, this is just, you're on the clock. Mm. And so there was, it was just a much different way of working back then. And I think that went all the way through to 2002, where as you said, Sean did it and Sean is pro and he's one of the best engineers in the business mm. and uh and he's highly paid for being such so therefore even on a project like that he has his rate and uh so you're not gonna say take two weeks to do this you know he might have you know taken a day and a half to to do et and been done with it right um yeah and close encounters as well the 1998 version of that so uh but you know, it, 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 me having the more specialized approach can come in and take hold of it and work with it the way a sculptor would with a lump of clay, mm. and just work at it till I'm happy with it until it's right. Yeah. Until the noises are gone and the edits are right and uh, and the balance is right and you know you don't necessarily have that luxury where when you're in a very expensive studio, it's just a, a matter of the the evolutionary process of all this where uh, a lot of things are possible now on an average humble desktop setup where in the past you had to be in a big huge expensive studio with two million dollars of equipment there right. in order in order to do something now it's kind of possible almost to sort of sit in a cafe on a laptop and do it Maybe you've done in 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 Burbank or California, or I have sometimes. I've, yes. Yeah, little edits or or on vacation. You're you know, I mean, you know, no, a lot a lot of stuff can get done. Or we've been. Uh, um, I remember on Star Trek the Motion Picture while we were dubbing the director's edition of that, we had a laptop going that was rendering effects. 
<laughs> right in the oh, room right. in the room with us is when you go and check and see how your effects render is going. I mean, and that was 2000. So, I mean, it was already getting there, but, uh, it's, it's just amazing, you know, um, how it keeps evolving to the point almost now where you just want to think about something happening and then it, it's, it's, it, and it gets done. Mm. You could have just tell a computer to do something and then you wait a little bit and there it is. Yeah. So strange world we live in. Was it Star Trek was Bruce Botnia too, is that right? Um, that well, when we did the album with him, yes, in 2012. We, because... went back, we went back and did, yeah, we transferred every bit of multi-track on that. That's another uh, recording which is particularly punchy and crisp. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, a stout, it's so, yeah. I mean, it's straight away, straight in. I mean, this is the Fox stage, and uh, you know, um, Jerry at his peak, and um, Lionel Newman's influence, and mm -hmm. just the best musicians there, and Craig Huxley with his blaster beam and synthesizers, <laughs> and and, uh, and the organ, which had the Wurlitzer organ at Fox at the time. So uh, yeah, all of that. That was another just kind of a lightning in the bottle recording, even though it was done under very odd circumstances, where the film was rushed but yet things were not kind of ready and not coming in and the first 20 minutes of music was tossed out and but it's just a fabulous fabulous recording <laughs> you're saying that robert wise giving you this this you know massive kind of break as such back in the mid 90s it's interesting then if you know having that almost full circle thing of working on the motion picture quite Quite recently, um, yeah. I'm just trying to recall now. He, when did he pass away? He 2004. He, he just got to hear it then, hadn't he? Uh, well, oh, no. No, no, well, we, no. Well, we did his director's cut of the yes. movie. That yes. was 2000, 2000 when we finished it. Um, so no, he was not around when we came back to do the music. Right. He's always been my role model anyway. So mm -hmm. I've tried to, you know, continue his gentlemanliness and integrity in everything that I've done. But yeah, so we had a load of fun transferring all the music and making sure that that every single second of it was preserved and super high resolution and future proofed as we say and then uh completely redid all the edits and bruce remixed it and remastered it and 
we did it on CD first and then with, and then on vinyl. And vinyl is a big in thing at the minute. Is there any talk of vinyl for ET or Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Uh, yes to ET coming next uh, spring. Oh, very good. Great. So, and I'll be uh, happy to have uh, the uh, new cover art we did uh, is in, in a 12-inch form. Well, yes, absolutely, yes. Beautiful cover art, and it's uh, far better than the, uh, the Blu-ray box set. But look, you know, let's not get bitchy. No, it's not. But I mean, I just was always feeling like uh, I don't really need to see the creature on the cover. I was trying to, let's see if we can go the other direction and uh, capture sort of the magic and the mystery that we all felt when the movie was new, where we didn't quite know what to expect. You have to wait for the movie to gradually reveal Hmm. E.T. to you. So, uh, you know, there are going to be new generations who've never seen the film. And, uh, you know, why let them be spoiled by, you know, a video box or uh, or a menu screen. You want to kind of keep keep that mystery. And to me, there was just a magic to everything else in the movie, to the children, to the house, to the neighborhood. There was magic in that. The forest, it wasn't just the creature that had the magic. And so I wanted to come up with something that sort of captured that. And when you looked at it, made you want to hear the music or start hearing the music in your head, capture something relatable, you know, just, uh, I mean, I, th- I think there's sort of the lost, lonely, abandoned creature. There's a relatability to that, but I've always believed that there's even more relatability to the sort of the, the wounded child from the broken home. You know, I certainly relate to that and, uh, right. um, wanted to see if we can come up with something that, uh, captured that and made you look at it and then say, hey, I want to go watch this movie again. If you see the creature, well, what's the point? I know what he looks like, so what do I have to watch the movie? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. But uh, to come up with an evocative, mysterious, dreamlike image. And uh, we just tried Jim Titus, our great artist, and I just, uh, you know, I pushed him on it and uh, kind of thought it was a fool's errand. But I said, look, let's just try it. And then uh, sent it to Steven's people and we had to wait, but he came through and said uh, he approved it. So there, we, there we were. So. That's, the, that's, that's, the, that's the big sign-off. Because, I mean, yeah, so I, I, just the other day I was watching uh, that Drew Struzan documentary, which is so tremendous. Um, I know he hasn't done all of Spielberg's films, but he's done so, so many. It's, it's great to see such... Um, it's breathing new life into into that iconic film, mm-hmm. music, image. And, and you're right, and it's it's, it's a great move. Another thing that connects Close Encounters and E.T. is the, the fact that the last reel or so is often, well, it's Spielberg decided to edit the film to the music, didn't he, in, in both, on both occasions? I don't know that that actually really was true for Close Encounters. Really? Yeah, definitely for E.T., where on day one of the scoring sessions, um, they did the bike chase and uh-huh. they did the goodbye scene. And in neither case did Williams feel that the tempos of the music were hitting the planned beats of the film the way he hoped they would. Yeah. And so in both cases, the film was turned off and Williams was allowed to record the cues to what felt musically the right tempo. And then Stephen came in and recut the picture to fit that. And as Williams says, that's kind of why the ending of E.T. has a sense of operatic completeness. Mm. is because the music is sort of setting the pace of the film rather than the other way around. Yeah. 
on Close Encounters, it seems like there was uh, rumors about cues being done way before any footage was seen. That actually was not true. Okay. Uh, the mothership arrival scene was like done on the second day or the first day, maybe. You know, right. or very early on. The only thing is there were there were shots missing, but the thing was timed out to how it was going to go. Okay. And they did have to do things like um, after the preview, I believe, they wanted to add in another alien, this sort of the first spindly alien that comes out. Yeah. And that was completely editorially created. So they had to get, grab music from other parts of the score to track over it. And, uh, you know, so things like that had to happen to the, to the finale. But I think what's really important is how music just dom dominates it. So it's not that mm. it was necessarily uh, cut to the music, but almost everything disappears. Anything important disappears from the soundtrack except the music. I said uh, music and light when we did our Empire of the Sun interview, talking about some of the scenes in that film. Yeah. And that, that's really, you know, this is, that's where that whole idea started with Stephen's films, is Close Encounters. It was the first thing that came to him in you know coming up with the film the idea of music and light and sort of dominating everything and everybody everything else can just sort of pull back and that's what you're left with yes it's just pure sound pure image and that's the indelible image with that film is is young barry trusting that light you remember You're more right more compelled by it than afraid of it right yes so, uh, yeah. because he's of the age where he, he would trust it more than say jim would you know Mm -hmm. um, in Empire of the Sun, but uh, just to backtrack a little bit for E.T. before we move on to Close Encounters fully, because of the, as you were saying, the rescoring and to tr just try and get the accents right, and, and I remember reading an interview with John Williams where it was it was particularly the, the bicycle chase he found the trickiest, wasn't it, to get you know, the trumpet lines and then the, getting the, the bicycles to land whenever the percussion was going down. Does it well, it's, a, it's such a, the tempo so fast. Yes. And with some of what those uh, horn lines have to do yeah. through there. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, if you think about, okay, you have the scene. Remember that when we look at the scene now, that's not the way it was originally cut. It might have been required to even go faster. Right, yes. And so now when they do it in concert, it's no problem because we already know you can play it at that speed because that's how it was originally recorded. And then now it's all clicked out to the finished film. So whatever the first version of it was might have been different. Maybe too much rubato, which is speeding up, slowing down, speeding up, slowing down. That could be very hard to do. Where on a scene like that, you want it just to kind of have a rhythm. So it was better to pull the film off and just run the music, just record the music with what rhythmically felt right and then conform the picture to it. So some shots might end up being a little longer, a little shorter, cuts moved, and then you get that result with this just feeling of, um, of pace that you almost forget that you're watching a movie. Mm. You just kind of get lifted out of yourself and you're swept along with this thing, with this, this combination of action and, and uh, humor and dialogue and, and music and sound effects and all of it is just going. And um, all of that's really come back uh, in a big way with the live concerts where, I mean, I just, the day before I left for London, I went to see it done with the American Youth Symphony, and these kids just played the heck out of this thing. Yeah. And the whole audience was just applauding through the entire last 20 minutes of the picture just because they liked what they were experiencing. Brilliant. And they just had to express it. It was just an amazing 
experience. This is the one David Newman conducted. He did not conduct it. No. Oh, sorry. Um, he didn't. Oh, right. No, no. He no. Actually, their own conductor who had never conducted to picture before. Wow. David rehearsed with him and uh, you know and, and and taught him how to do it, but it was right. the first time he actually had to do this live uh, all the way through. Fantastic. So uh, it was it was pretty amazing. It's just that that uh, I don't know that there's ever been a better example of what music can do for a film. Than, yeah, than, than that finale, the final fifteen and minutes, the, right? And then, of course, the yeah. goodbye scene was the same. Was the same thing, you know? Mm. There were just it, it, you wouldn't think that those beats would be hard to hit, but there's an alternate of the departure on the CD mm-hmm. where you can hear the tempos are different, and they start speeding up, they slow down, and it's kind of not right. Yeah. Where you want to just you want to feel like you're having sort of a, a constant emotional pace. Yes, and uh, and then the picture was just recut to fit that. Yeah. And, and that's why it just feels right. It just feels like it's glued together in a way, um, where there's no effort to the music. So, so it's interesting to, uh, you know, have them to compare to, but to, and to understand that that's part of the process of why that ending is so great. Testament to their craft. And it was great that John Toll was there with his camera. Because we got a little bit of John Williams on the podium in the booth, they they weren't quite getting it right, were they? And right, right. It's great to see all that on film, and then essentially have the finish article here, and it's something which I think I mean we're, I suppose we're all grateful for that. And I mean, I, whenever you were, you and Bruce were listening to, was there much? Uh, additional alternate stuff which just didn't get on the album or no you see the bike chase they did the one they did they did take one and decided to take the movie off mm-hmm. so there's not like all these other versions where we can hear what the tempos originally were yes there aren't they did one take okay and then decided to turn the movie off and then did they did three more of the bike chase and the final edit was combination of those three and uh just for performance reasons and that was the beauty is that they could performance edit it with no regard for what the movie was doing just have it feel right musically mm. then take care of the film after that yes you yes. know it's an unusual way of working but uh it just uh you know that's where the magic came into it and the same thing for the for the ending for the goodbye scene i mean that really feels like the ending of an opera right mm-hmm. you know um well he calls it operatic doesn't he spielberg in his original liner notes yeah and yeah. i'm glad you reprinted them as well because they are uh, you know, I obviously read them as a young boy, and uh, you know, it, it was quite a um, had a lasting effect because because what he wrote was so so true. You know, he says soothing, benign, and then he, you know, and it, and it is downright operatic at the end. It mm-hmm. is uh, totally, and uh, it was one of those things you could connect with as as a young music fan, thinking, yeah, you know, and then it it widens your horizons to seek out these and and, and learn a, a greater appreciation for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, absolutely, no, it's it's and and it never gets old. I mean, and when you see it now with in concert with the audience again and the applause and everything that goes, you you just realize it's just it's it's just (laughs) it will never get old. It it won't, you know, when we're all gone, they'll still be writing that movie and people will still be applauding the ending, you know. (laughs) And the final few bars and that trumpet statement and the rainbow will never sound as good as it does in the film. And I've heard countless orchestras perform that. And obviously, look, you know, it's music always sounds different, and that's the beauty of it, you know, having different performances. But um, for me personally, it will never sound as good as it does on, on that recording, the original recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you know, maybe in some concert halls, the timpani might be more pronounced and there might be a more resonant sound. 
And I think you know some orchestras would have the bells up for the final horn statements. I'm not sure if the bells are up on the on the original recording. I don't know if you recall the the sheet music for the original uh, recording, but certainly in the concert hall, the bells, you know, the horns, bells are up for that final statement, and it's it just adds to the drama. Yes, you know, you know what yes, I mean. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, and it's a very. I, I've always felt like it's a, a little distillation of uh, 2001. Oh yes, Zarathustra. Yes, it's kind of it's. I mean, it's a C major chord, mm-hmm. and it's like with that with those timpani back and forth on the open fifths. I mean, it's 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 just a distillation of that. And you end on this shot of the child looking up at the stars, mm. and as two thousand one ends with the star child looking down from the stars. Yeah. So it's kind of like there's these are sort of bookends. I mean, there's just just an evocative, subconscious mythological connection going on there, with it. That just again that sense of com- completion. You know, uh, that just you know, you this this the story is finished. Either the orchestra is done. This is this is the ending. You can't get any more basic than ending it with that big <laughs> C major chord. You know, so isn't it amazing how effective it is just to have that simple piano come in? It's like perfect, right? Which you mean for the end credits? Perfect programming, yes. Which was rather which, than the which, strings which, kind which, of which was a redo. Yeah, yes, so. indeed. Yeah, yeah, so they started with the, a different ending and then. Went back and redid that piano later, and the, the the new material that Williams wrote for the ETN concert back in two thousand two. Mm-hmm. What was just out of interest was that question posed whether it would be. I mean, was it recorded? And was not recorded, what? other than for that oh, right. presentation. The same okay. thing with the new um, second act intro for mm. the concerts. Mm. They've decided that you know the things that he does for concert uh you have to go to the concert to hear it right fair enough. um so they haven't done recordings of it but yeah it was like just it was like it's a combination of different cues put together i think as sort of an overture for the shrine performance you're talking about right? yes which i thought was effective right and it was a nice uh you know just modulations and it was just mm-hmm. nice arrangements you know right but you know Thankfully, we've got it on disc. Well, a shorter version. We have a little quasi-overture, which is a piece of music based on the E.T. themes, which we will play before the film. And Stephen has prepared some shots, some very beautiful shots, of some of the members of the orchestra playing flute, French horn, and so on. So if we have the music exactly in sync with that film, it will seem as though they're playing the music in the film with actually playing it on stage. So that's again another feat for us if we can accomplish that. As far as I know, this has never been done before. You know, we have done silent movies, but to present a film with the entire interlock thing of all the dialogue and all the sound effects with the music, I think, certainly for me first time, and I don't know of it having been done before. So these anniversary releases, Mike, of Close Encounters and E.T. are very significant for many reasons. 
I guess the, the the overriding theme of the the aliens, and also a music being such a big character in the film, but with Close Encounters even more so because we know the story of John Williams saying to Steven Spielberg, you know, I can't do anything with five notes. It must be seven notes. You know, that's that great story he told, and apparently he came up with like a hundred variations. Is, is this this is true? Apparently, is this? Tell us a bit about this uh, fantastic creation, you know, one of the best scores of all time. Well, we don't really know the number. I mean, I think the one that everybody's sort of the most comfortable with is maybe 250. And uh, <laughs> Michael Clasterin, who just wrote this wonderful book, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the ultimate visual history, you know, went into this and right. tried to see, you know, and, and again, the stories vary. <laughs> And I think, um, who was it that told me that, uh, I guess it might have been Doug Trumbull, that just remembers Stephen coming on and saying, here are the five notes, and like there wasn't any effort to it at all. But this idea of um, a musical greeting, more than hello, but less than a sentence, you know, that's, I think, what, <laughs> Steven, what Steven Spielberg wanted. And, uh, you know, experimenting with the five notes as they just sat down and did and just tried things out. The story was they hired a mathematician to sort of give them an idea of really how many possibilities there were, and they were really almost infinite. Um, and they just kept shortlisting it and would circle different candidates and just keep coming back to one particular one and uh, eventually just said, well, you know, we keep coming back to this one. I guess maybe that's it, you know? And it wasn't any more remarkable to John than any of the others that were on the short list. It was just like, well, okay, well, I guess this is it. And um, <laughs> we'll work, we'll go with that. And you know, it was not any big lightning strike or, you know, epiphany. It just was, this is, this feels right. And it's what we keep coming back to. So let's just trust in it and go with it. There's a great picture on the on the documentary that was first released in 1998 by, you know, Lauren of John Williams lying on, on a sofa, probably in the booth. <laughs> It's interesting to hear this. There's so many inter interpretations. And um, I think what's fascinating as well about the similarities with E.T. and Close Encounters is the fact that the, the very much the last reel is, again, the music really washes over you, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It's such a big uh, influence and uh, profound effect on audiences all across the world. Yes, definitely. And how the music is so experimental in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And earlier we mentioned 2001, and I mean, and certainly Close Encounters, both film and score take some leads from that, some influence from that, I think, in um, some of the sort of microtonal experimental type music yes. which Stanley Kubrick used in 2001. There's certainly that kind of approach to a lot of Close Encounters, but then in the ending, it just gradually gets more and more tonal.
than the five notes which have been part of the story actually eventually become the score. And then the end title becomes just a presentation of an orchestra playing these five notes. So something that starts as source music but then becomes a theme. Very, very interesting. And, uh, and it was the right way to, to approach it. And then there's even a moment when we get to the climax of the film where Roy Neary is going to go into the spaceship with the aliens. Everything gets dialed off the soundtrack entirely. Even the rumble of the mothership, footsteps, all of that is dialed completely out. We get just music. And there again, you know, just cinema is just distilled into this music and light. And that's all that you need. Yes. That's the moment that the whole thing was sort of pointed towards. Can you tell a story and get to this moment where it's just music and light, but it's still a story? Mm. Well, the, the opening of that film in, in the desert is uh, is particularly striking. No small part thanks to the fact of the the massive kind of percussion blast and uh, you know strings and brass. Uh, it, it's it's a wonderful way to open a film, and this is thinking back to that era is something which. John Williams uh, always knew what to say, and he always still does know what to say, but it's something so particularly memorable. And then the use of light, even in the desert, whenever the, the desert scene is finishing and Bob Balaban's being covered by all that desert sand, it's so, so effectively done, you know, with the, the use of light and, and, and shadow. It's Well, there's so much we could talk about because that whole opening sequence was not originally supposed to be the opening sequence. You know, the first scene of the screenplay was the air traffic control. Right, yes. And um, monitoring of uh, aircraft encountering a UFO was supposed to then be followed by that plane landing at Chicago O'Hare, and the government team comes to and talk to the passengers and take their cameras away. And at that, and you can see there's, there are outtakes of this, that that was supposed to be where Lacombe, played by Francois Truffaut, mm. meets Bob Balaman's character as the interpreter there. Oh. And then that was all taken out and the new scene was shot very very late of this new opening of the film in the Sonora Desert with the five uh, World War II fighters being discovered there and part of that was because they had not established how the government was going to take the five notes and translate them into the map coordinates and that scene had been omitted and there wasn't one written so the scene where that takes place which is uh, at the radio telescope in like a trailer, in a glass trailer, and they're looking at the map and they figure out that it's leading to Wyoming. That was also shot very, very late. And it was decided at that time to make Bob Balaban's character a former cartographer, now working as an interpreter, so that when they went back and shot that opening desert scene, they could now introduce him by saying, uh, my occupation is cartography, I'm a map maker but I happen to speak French and uh, becomes Lacombe's translator. That's right, yes. So then the thing that uh, happened as a result of it is the movie has a completely different type of opening. Again, it's rather like a distillation of 2001 A Space Odyssey where he leaves you with this blank screen for a very long time as this music builds and builds and builds. And what you're getting there is the entire orchestra and the choir are eventually reaching a chord where all 12 notes of the scale are being kind of thrown at your face. And then it suddenly shifts with that blast of light to everybody doing C, C natural. Uh, and if you even examine it carefully, you'll even see that in between the black and the first shot of the desert is actually a clear frame, one clear white frame. 
So it actually goes from pure black to pure white and then and then the scene right on that cut. Right. And we go from total, total dissonance of all 12 unformed notes being played to everybody playing a, a C major. So it's like taking the overture and then the main title from 2001, which takes several minutes, and doing it in one minute. That's uh, chaos leading to order. From there, you go on to this whole idea of shaping something, you know, and making it right. And that's what Roy does with this vision that the UFOs give him. And, and that's why all this atonal experimental music, particularly in the Barry's kidnapping scene, mm. the more dissonant it is, the more the five notes actually sound like something. Yes. Because if, if, the, if the score was too thematic and too much with love themes and marches or any of that, then the five notes would kind of get lost in it. But, mm -hmm. So that's why the score is filled with like long, sustained strings or rumbling sounds that are just sustained so that those five notes stand out. Um, and then gradually, you know, themes are introduced. There's a, a theme for Roy and there's a theme for the mountain and for the vision and then there's a little motif for the sort of the truck convoy. And then it all eventually comes together so that when you get to that ending, you know, it just gets very, very liturgical almost. And then the five notes actually become the score. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's an it's a ingeniously written score. Working on it, I just got to appreciate it even more and more and more. It's just, uh, it, it just is uh, endlessly compelling and interesting. And you just wonder, you know, where that kind of brilliance came from. He's getting, he's given, was given so much attention for Star Wars yes. that year. And I was in New York uh, for the concert premiere of Star Wars, writing the liner notes for Close Encounters. And then I remember, you know, trying to wrap my mind around how to write about it and how deep I can go with it. And then going to the rehearsal for Star Wars and thinking, well, that's a good score. <laughs> but it's just a score. I mean, not to take anything away from Star Wars, but as compared to Close Encounters, you know, um, they're two breeds entirely. I mean, uh, yeah. Star Wars dips into sort of corn gold classic film scoring and then 19th century, something rooted in our past. Yes. Whereas Close Encounters is experimental and challenging and uh, sounds like it's coming from somewhere else. Perfect to the content of the film. I totally agree with what you're saying, and what I love as well about Close Encounters is the, the affectionate nods I had to Bernard Herrmann with the, the string writing. Um, I love that. And also, like, the abduction of Barry, you you mentioned there about that scene being particularly striking uh, and that cue. But even just the, the deep, you know, the bass, low, you know, wordless choir coming in whenever, like, oh, mm -hmm. incredible scoring. Which you can do. I can't get that In <laughs> Incredible scoring. And it's so... Uh, best, I should say, if you get the chance to watch the film with headphones, best experience actually wearing headphones, believe it or not, uh, as much as we love surround sound. But it just it's amazing how uh, the films back then were so... They were just better mixed, weren't they? I mean, uh, in, in many ways, because the music was more pronounced. I mean, I remember watching Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, 2011, 2010. It was a, it was a um, DCP print, but the music was so well mixed compared to the later ones, like Temple of Doom or Last Crusade, it was just more.
you think it was that era of better mixing? I don't know. Music? And of course, I mean, the, 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 there's a later mix of Raiders that's very different from the original. Right. Um, okay. If you go onto your DVD or Blu-rays and play the French track, you'll you'll hear it. it, it has, oh, really? It has been significantly updated, yeah. All oh, right. Okay. You know, which is fine. It's just been modernized. But I mean, I, I know exactly what you're saying, and, and I get this from E.T. in particular, is that as I'm watching the movie, I can pay full attention to the story, the acting, the dialogue, everything. But somehow I am aware of every little thing that the music is doing. Mm. You can almost hear the melody and you can, you're always aware of it. You could follow it. It never gets lost, but it doesn't ever drown anything else out either. There's somehow, uh, they live together sonically in such a way that you can be aware of it and consciously enjoying the music without taking any attention away from the story or the dialogue. At least that's for me. I mean, I think maybe the, the average person is music supposed to be almost invisible. It's affecting you emotionally, but you don't quite know where or exactly how. But for me, you know, uh, and Close Encounters is the same way. I can actually be aware of everything the music is doing mm. and still process all the dialogue and the story. They don't get in the way of each other somehow. Mm. And um, a lot of it, I guess, depends on how it's composed. True. Yeah. If something's just droning along, if it's something's just a drone, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you, eventually you'll just stop noticing it. Yeah. Or they'll bring it up where it's just taking over everything. But there's something definitely to it from that era where you're just aware of what it's doing, but it's so perfectly wedded to everything else. It's, it, it's never distracting, it's never overbearing, but it also never disappears. The reason why I think the score still sounds so fresh today, you were saying about it being so striking, you know, about its structure and it being atonal, yet tonal. But I think the for the musicians at the time, because I spoke with Richard Kaufman over the years, mm. he was a violinist on it, as you know, as I think was David Newman, and he Richard saying he was saying that they all, well, they weren't allowed to look at the screen because Spielberg didn't want the aliens to be seen they wanted it all to be a surprise so was this for close encounters or yes ET? for close encounters okay. yes i know et had blackouts on things too oh did it as well so, yeah oh so. wow but he he was saying that it was just for the musicians in the in the actual on the scoring stage it was just uh they were all blown away by it and i guess when you think of that era there wasn't anything else that remotely sounded like it right but, right i mean i think I, I again i think bringing this sort of uh aleatoric music and microtonalism to the cinema. I think we owe a lot to Stanley Cooper for 2001. One of the reasons why he didn't go at Alex North's score, who was a very modern composer yeah. and wrote a very modern score for the first half of 2001, is that it still was something created in 1968 for cinema.
Kubrick needed something that sounded like the chaos of the universe. And so he chose the Ligeti and uh, the Requiem and all, all that very atonal music where you, you know, the microtonalism is when you actually have everybody in the orchestra playing something different. And you just, it creates very odd sounds. And it's just, again, this chaos. But then it all, it's relieved by the return of Richard Strauss's Zarathustra, which is as tonal and basic as it comes. So I think that that introduced it to cinema audiences in a big way. And But we had Alex North and Jerry Goldsmith and Leonard Rosamond experimenting with dissonance yes. and atonality in the 60s and pushing it as far as they could go. And then when we got uh, sort of less of the big orchestral scores, we were still getting that dissonance in things like the French Connection. <laughs> Schriffen, and that there was a lot of striking my yeah, but, but 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 very jazz influenced, but still, uh-huh. you know, challenging yeah. um, melodically and um, tonally, yeah. challenging, and um, in which, generally speaking, orchestral film scores did not do, and so when Close Encounters came along to actually dare to take that approach and have it work, I would dare say that Close Encounters was actually more of an influence on how the evolution of film scores than Star Wars was. I think Star Wars got everybody to want big orchestras again, but I think in terms of how, what you could actually do with film composition, which was sort of locked into this, you know, rhythmic, thematic, we have to have a love theme, we have to have a hero theme, you know, that kind of approach from the past, we were sort of locked into that. And I think in a way, Close Encounters sort of freed it up where a big orchestra can now do this, uh, you know, very kind of nebulous, experimental sounding music. Yeah. And an audience was now, would now accept it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, even if you compare, say, the first Star Wars, which is does almost does not have an atonal bar in it. Maybe some experimental percussion like with the sand people Little people yeah but yeah. that's about it you know but by the time you get to empire you get dissonance right from the get-go almost yeah in, in some scenes so and just in the space of three years there was a yeah that's true some change going on there uh-huh. but i think that that just opened it up but i mean what it made you just feel in close encounters was that a conversation was going on but you didn't have the ability to interpret it we under we know it's music but we don't know what it's saying. We don't. We're not. We haven't been given the ability to understand it. It's it's a musical representation of this vision that's implanted into the characters' heads who who see these UFOs. Yes. They don't. They don't know. You know. It, this means something. But they. That's what they keep saying. This means something. This is important. But they can't articulate it. And that's what this music is. It's trying to say something. But it's. 
uh, even some of the low end rumbling. It's like, a, you know, it's, it sounds just like rumbling, but it's actually the notes are all written out, but it's so low in the register mm. that it's almost below the human ear's ability to <laughs> comprehend the, uh, the modulations there. Mm. Again, the conversation is going on, but we don't have the ability to hear it. Yeah. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating approach. Mm. That that he did, and uh, and then you have these high sustained strings that just go over scenes like where uh, Roy and Ronnie go back to the where he where he saw the flyby and, and they share a kiss, and it's just these yep. very high string sustains, and this is a cue that's never been released until now. There's a lot of that, and that kind of gives you sort of this air of scientific mystery, you know. So you get these sort of high sustains and these low rumbles, and in the middle of these five notes that just uh, keep coming at you, and that's why you focus on that and not necessarily, you know, on the on the score that's around it. Just, I don't know if this is instinct or how much it would be thought through, but I mean, I, with John, I think it's just instinct. He just knows, you know, some, something just comes out of him. He knows that it's right and this is the right approach yeah. to take. And uh, we don't understand these aliens, but we're intrigued by them. And that's what that music kind of compels. It's a combination of the unknown, but the scientific curiosity. And the music just captures all of that. We're sort of afraid, but it's not really horror music, you know? It's it's uh, it's more it, mysterious, right? It's more like um, we want the answers, uh-huh. you know, just through the way that you feel about if if you have religious beliefs, it's kind of like that. You can be afraid of it, but you really there's something inside you that really wants the answers. Yeah, you want to you want to seek, you know. It's like Barry opening the door. You know, you it might be terrifying what's out there, but I have to know what it is. Mm. And just like the way that the brilliant poster art for Close Encounters was the light at the end of the road, you know. Yes. It's ominous, right. but I must go see this movie and find out what that is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And then the Devil's Tower location which uh Joe Olvies apparently was was the guy that spotted it and let Spielberg know, didn't he? Yes, I mean he went all over the country looking at different buttes and and mountains and finding just the right one that mm-hmm. uh had been indicated in the script and someone told him about it and he checked it out and just, uh, I've been there four or five times, and I mean, the way he describes it is absolutely true, where you you will see this in the distance, but then you kind of drive through some rolling hills and you don't see it. Then you will round a bend right. and suddenly there it will be towering over you, and it's just an unbelievable sight. And uh, in the most wonderful Wyoming uh, country, I just, I just love the place. You might go there 
for close encounters, but you definitely come away with something else. It's just a very, very centering place, sacred to four or five Native American tribes, by the way. So, um, oh. but it's a very, very centering place. There's just something, something about it. So it's a, it's, it's a trek to get out up there. <laughs> but, uh, but as I said, you know, to me, after my first trip there was in 92 and, uh, been back, uh, four or five times. Magnificent place. Uh, another great example of the the kind of Williams Spielberg reveal as well. Whenever the the theme, whenever we first hear the theme for Devil's Tower, you know, whenever it's 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 amazing. That's a part a part of well, it's now a part of film history, and obviously now on this CD as well. Well, I go into this a little bit in the notes with uh, where he does with the. Um... With the intervals, you know, I mean, if you're talking about the two note theme or the three note theme, because there's sort of a two note theme that's kind of like the vision theme. And it's well, it's it's the first time. So uh, whenever the car just gets to that that fence, mm -hmm. uh, it's the. Da, 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 da. <laughs> reaching for something so yeah 
um, reaching for, for fulfillment. But before that, it's like you get the uh, the two note vision motif, which is based oddly enough on a tritone, which is usually you're told to stay away from because it's just mm. awkward. It's musically awkward, but Williams manages to make it appealing somehow. I mean, it's known as the Devil's Chord. It probably was tr- irresistible when he found out that the thing was called Devil's Tower. That he has to use the de- the Devil's Chord, <laughs> right, of yes. that tritone, or that, or that um, diminished fourth, to represent the people seeing this vision, you know, of this mountainous shape and trying to figure out what is it. But again, something you should be fearful of, but somehow it's beautiful. Mm. And that's what the UFOs were. That's, we're kind of afraid of them, but they're beautiful. They're undeniably beautiful. So. Ice cream. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> it was Barry's eyes anyway. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. There, was well, a, there was a red whoosh. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it took me ages to figure out what he was saying. Because whenever I first said, what on earth is he saying? Because for us, it's probably maybe easier for you, uh, you know, American. But um, I think I think for audiences uh, over here, it took a while. Because his, his voice was quite kind of deep south, you know. I forget Barry's, uh, Carrie, someone, what's his? Uh, Carrie Guffey. Thank you. Because he's got this very kind of Texan accent almost. Oh, and so he says ice cream, yeah. Whenever, well, and he says a few other things, you know, whenever the, um, when, in various, you know, various parts, whenever he's trying right. to chase, chase the aliens, and you, you can't quite figure out what he's saying. But over the years, I've, I've figured it out, because obviously my ears are better tuned to that accent. But so. You've learned to listen with an accent. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. So now we know that John Williams is very proud of this score, and it'll be interesting for us to learn from you then the, the process and and the, the overall sign off. And uh, obviously, you would have pitched the uh, the running order and how you wanted it to be presented. So, what was his feedback, and what what was what was his direction? Well, the interesting thing is that in researching this, well, first of all. It was a matter of finding the elements and um, pulling them back in off of a two-inch, and this was all part of the restoration process of the film itself that was going on Right. Um, for the new theatrical release that happened in September and uh, the subsequent 4K release on disc. But in digging deeply for it and figuring out you know, what to do with it this time around. We found that initially in 1977, it was supposed to be a double LP, just like Star Wars. Oh. And there was, I don't know how much you want to go on about this, but uh, at the very last minute, it was kind of changed to a single LP, which we all knew was the soundtrack for many, many years. It was Arista, wasn't it? It was Arista. And as near as I can kind of speculate, it might have been someone at Arista listened to it and decided it did not have the same sales potential as Star Wars did. But some other things had gone on at the same time, particularly with regard to the end credits, which from the outset were supposed to have an arrangement of When You Wish Upon a Star play over them, which was recorded the second day of the sessions in June. By the time the film was finished and they were about to preview it in October, Spielberg decided to actually put in the song from Pinocchio, the actual recording from Pinocchio, and then the soundtrack album was changed to have that as well. Then they previewed it, and it didn't get a good response. So rather than revert back to John's instrumental arrangement of the song, they took the song out entirely and then 
tracked in music from other parts of the score to finish out the end credits. So they had to quickly make the album match that, and all they did was take the finished mix of the film and dub it over onto a redone album master, which in the process also had its running time reduced from 70 minutes down to 35. Yeah, big reduction. And, and at some point in, in that process also was John being asked to arrange a disco theme. I remember and well. <laughs> I do, yeah. So, and, uh, which he did not want to do. And consequently, it's not on our uh, new release, even though I said that it really should be because it's part of it. And, but in, in his mind, it wasn't. Uh, because if you look at the LP jacket, it's not indicated on there at all. They had to put a sticker on, on the cover. And the, uh, the reason for that is because the album was done. And that disco theme was not recorded till second week of November. Okay. And they made a uh, separate 33 RPM single that was shoved in the second the backside of the gatefold. And I think they were just trying to do what they could to increase the sales because two things had happened. Number one was Miko's version of Star Wars had hit mm. the charts. Yeah. And I think it made it be hit in the States number one sometime in August or September. So right when all this was going on. And then I think everybody saw the way disco was going and there was already buzz about Saturday Night Fever, which also opened in November. Yeah. So it was a matter of, let's see, uh, you know, what they can do to sort of capture the pop market. And so that's how that all came about. So the album was not at all what he'd originally intended. And it had all these other circumstances just to sort of hit it at, at once. So now we found out that... Uh, the original approach on two LPs would have been almost the entire score on it with, and mostly chronological with a few things moved here and there and a few edits. So I took the lead from that and got, took a little gamble this time around by, can we come up with something that on one disc by itself is sort of the best presentation musically of the score feels complete, doesn't have any abrupt endings or short little cues that kind of drop you off a cliff at the end, but has a musical flow to it. Yeah. And basically keeping the chronology, but then you making use of the second disc to give you those discrete cues uh-huh. as they were released in the 1998 version for anybody who wants to reprogram it. Some album tracks recreated, then we had uh, all this great source music and extras added and it filled out the two discs nicely and my my feeling about it was that let's see if we could have this be something that the listener could personalize you know in the same way that roy manipulates the you know the mountain shape to his own liking to get it right i thought well you know the album can for the listener and for the close encounters fan can be that they're free to playlist it however they want and maybe experiment with four or five different ways of experiencing it and it keeps the music fresh and at the same time maybe frees it up from the movie a little bit and uh-huh. lets it work more as pure music yeah which to my ear it really really does oh yeah very much so so that was the approach i took and um i think that i've done enough of these with the spielberg williams camp that they you know had had some trust in it and so when i outlined this for john he, he approved it he said yeah that sounds fine so, and Brilliant. and then uh, even got this great source music that he wrote. Well, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that for the, the kind of uh, Ten Commandments pastiche. Yes, huh? And then makes you... you kind of want to hear the John Williams Sandal <laughs> Epic score from 1958, right? <laughs> that we don't have, you know. It's uh, brilliant, you know, channeling know. some Elmer Bernstein and Nicholas Rosa. He would have been in the 
in the in the studios playing piano, wouldn't he? Back right, right, right. In those yeah. days, right, or arranging jazz for somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but doing, um, doing um, James Darren albums. The that's right. At Colpix, yeah. But the I think I mean, for me, we mentioned before we started recording, it's the uh, it's the five tones. Just uh, you know, you may think I mean, you know, it's not you know the most musical thing on the album, but for you know for including on an album, I think is such an, an important thing because it's such a part of the fabric of the film. And then hearing it, it just it creates a great listening experience. And it, obviously, it's neatly done as like a montage as mm -hmm. such and then you've got the you know the advanced scout greeting too which has this, this great kind of chord elements and deciding to go with the the you know the final you have the expanded soundtrack on disc one and then disc two having the alternates and additional music I mean, what was it easy did you go back and forth a lot or was this in your mind right this is what I want. disc one was pretty much a lock once i heard it and i looked at what the original double lp was supposed to be okay and then did not make the little cuts that would have been made then, but kept the cues sort of intact, but kept the spirit of that okay. uh, that original intent. That was pretty much locked. Moving things around on disc two took a little bit of work. It was just a matter of how much space have I got? How much can I get away with? Um, how do, do I keep repetition to a minimum? And what sort of works is if one were to just play disc two? Would it work and be satisfying on its own? So, so, so if you didn't want to experiment and and play around with it, but it's what would, what would still work and feel like a complete experience, knowing what alternates we had, what different edits we had, adding in the music that was recorded in 1980 for the interior of the mothership, where that would go, how to work the source music in. I mean, it was just a little bit of experimenting, but not but not much. I kind of knew what I had. Um, I was happy that there was room for to hear the various permutations of the five tones yes. that you get throughout the movie. Yeah. At the time, obviously, the focus would have been the, the main dialogue with the mothership. Hmm. And, uh, there's a great and, alternate of that as well. Yeah, there was a, there's the pre-recording version of it. That's what they actually took to Alabama right. and attempted to film to. Okay. And uh, eventually there, not able to get the lights to synchronize precisely, just sort of went and shot lights flashing anyway. <laughs> and then and then cut it together, and then John had, had to redo the cue to fit the flashing lights. It's double the length, isn't it? Like I mean, the the, the alternate is like I think it's is it six minutes. Uh, the final version is six minutes, but of course in the movie it's cut down as well. Yeah, uh -huh. and then the, and then there's a but then there's the pre-recorded version, which uses more synthesizer mm. and fewer um, acoustic instruments. Yeah, they tried that at first, but but realized that if you use acoustic instruments the mothership feels alive mm. whereas the, the synthesizer is just too well synthesized <laughs> so uh yeah you know and it doesn't have that sense of effort that john said the sense of breathing or it was you know like the mothership's having to take a breath in order to play its notes that's different from a, the clean synthesizer just right you know yes there's no uh there's no volume it the note plays and then it's not then it doesn't play <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right so 
as opposed to a tuba or an oboe, which, you know, will have a, a slight, you know, change in volume as it, as the note plays. Which again, uh, at the time in in the recording studio, would have been amazing, uh, you know, hearing the hearing the, the tuba and the oboe and, and all that because it would be night night. And it was all recorded at different times. I mean, that was a gradually constructed thing over a period of months. Yeah. Whereas they would have one layer and then another layer and another layer, and then they'd bring Tommy Johnson in to do more tuba, and then they'd bring uh, Mike Lang in to do more keyboard, and you know it was just yes. constantly layering it until it was a finished thing. It was very very complicated. So yeah. It's going to be extremely interesting to uh, pull that off in concert, which there were What's discussions next year, next year. Yeah, there were discussions early on about you know how do we do that, and you know or do we just embed that and play it, but. You know, it was obvious that you can't have people come to hear Close Encounters in concert and then get to that moment and the orchestra just sits there. <laughs> so they have to figure out a way to True. do this with yes. the orchestra playing and they'll they'll sweeten it with some synthesizer components, I think. Mm. And and it should work. Because, yeah. I mean, it's got to be powerful enough to, you know, believe that glass shattering moment, right? Well, so, that's right, yes. Duh, duh. Right, so <laughs> uh, one tuba, you know actually playing on a stage in a concert hall might not be believable. So we're going to have to sort of maybe augment that. So there's some experimentation and some work that we're going to be doing to get that ready for concert, but should be very interesting. Uh, looking forward to it. It's and then be... of course, every hall you're at is different. So oh, you have to tweak and, so. and tech it, you know, depending yes. on where you are. So, uh, but it's a very challenging one. And I think the orchestras are going to love uh, getting to do that music. Uh, I would say so very much so. Yes. Now the the dialogue or the conversation as as it, a lot of us know it from that that uh, what what are your thoughts on the the, the final the final notes being a, a kind of you know a, a kind of wink to Jaws or is that just a coincidence? Do you think it's a little wink a knowing wink to? It's a wink, but it's actually was editorially created. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Which is uh, why you hear it on the original <laughs> album and on the new one, but not on the '98 one. Okay. It actually is editorially created, note by note. You know, the original version was note-by-note note analog edits, tape edits by Kenny Wanberg. You know, now I could redo it all digitally, but I kind of kept the original timing of the whole piece. <laughs> but, I mean, to actually match the movie, it required almost note-by-note note edit to right. match the flashing lights. I see. Okay. So, it was incredibly complex. I mean, they probably yeah. spent... I mean, the score itself was done just in four days. It's unbelievable. But it was months of work to get that dialogue scene. And then if you go back to July of 76 when they did the pre-recording and early 76 when they were experimenting around to find the five notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, yeah. most of the lion's share of the work on that score was that scene. But I love having the synthesizer demonstration and then Lacombe playing it in the trailer and then Barry on the xylophone. Oh, yes. And then the phone when uh, Jillian <laughs> picks it up, which is interesting also because that was also editorially created. Here's okay. something that you might not be aware of, that if you listen to the various kidnapping cue, that ending goes on a lot longer. And what actually happens is that uh, the insert of her dialing the zero on the telephone, uh -huh. is an ins it's an insert shot later. What actually she's doing there is calling Roy. And there's, there's a deleted scene where we go to the house right. and Terry Gar picks up the phone. And in the background is a television playing this Western, and we have that Western music on this release now. Yes. There's a uh, moment where you quickly see it on the TV, on the, in Jillian's house, but it's actually also playing at Roy's house. 
when Ronnie picks up the phone. And because Ronnie picks up the phone, Jillian hangs up. So that whole thing with the five notes beeping was an editorially created insert done right. later and and uh, to eliminate that scene at Roy's house. Clever. So, Because uh, it's actually quite uh, eerie, kind of sense of menace. and Right, but if you look at it, you see that she's not really reacting to it. She's actually just waiting for, she's waiting, she's hearing a phone ring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because you would see her maybe pull the phone away from her and stare at it, terrified of it, or throw it down. You know, but she just kind of sits there listening to it. It's it's just it's it's totally editorially created. Oh, interesting. You know, uh, as is the uh, the mu- Jiminy Cricket music box, were also later inserts. Oh, and the train set. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which only is in the from memory the original version, isn't it? Yeah. The entire in the right. It's all it, that was done entirely to motivate Ronnie calling Roy Jiminy Cricket. Because they deleted that entire conversation going about to going to see Pinocchio. Or, or, or Goofy Golf. All right. So, and the insert later, when he's cleaning up all the news clippings and saying everything's fine, all this stuff is coming down, there's another insert of the music box. Yes. That's also it was a late addition, and that necessitated right. John coming up with cartoon music to fill in that hole in the Duck Dodgers. So, yeah, okay. So this thing on here that's called... Um, Lava flow, lava flow, yeah. Named after Bill Lava, uh-huh. is uh, that was done entirely as a, to fill in that hole in Duck Dodgers to accommodate that insert of the music box. It's great to have that that source music because 
Like, for instance, the accidental tourist has a, you know, a great bit of source music whenever they're in the cinema. I remember mm-hmm. William Hurt, Gina Davis, and the young, the young Oliver. And it's clearly William's writing yes. you know, some fantastic action music. So obviously that wasn't approved for accidental tourists, but well, we didn't expand that, that, that we weren't able to expand accidental tourists. Warner Brothers Records, right? And then right. Yeah. It, okay. Yes. It was just. A and I think that would Lucas Kendall, right? And then and it's like it was only a few minutes of unreleased music from it. Right. Well, one of those would would be, would be that. Yes. But yeah. it would have required another co-license with the Warner's Studios. Oh, too much. Right. Too much hard work. So maybe uh, yeah. easier now to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's fantastic to hear because yes, as you know, we don't get. And I love how we have lava flow now. And we have stalling around on Jurassic Park. So we've covered <laughs> the two Warner Brothers cartoon composers there. Yeah, there's a bit of that actually. It's almost like it's almost similar to the, um, you know, Mr. DNA. That right, kind of, right. That's is that right. what you mean? That was called stalling around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot the Q name. Now we know we know that the special edition had had new music written, as we were just saying, way back the first time. The only time we heard that music was thanks to the that Boston Pops, you know, concert um, piece he put together. Because I think that's the first time it was released, wasn't it? The special edition, just a, a few, a few minutes of music. Yes. So, I mean, they needed that music for the inside of the mothership. But by that point, April of 1980, John started with the Boston Pops. Uh And so it would have been ridiculous to fly him back to Los Angeles to do three minutes of music. So they decided to record it in Boston. Mm. And Stephen went there with Michael Kahn in um, June of 1980 on their way over to France for the starting of Raiders. The way that it was worked out was that John would update his concert suite to now work that music into it 
for his first album with the Boston Pops, which was Pops in Space. Mm. And, um, and that's why, from that point, that music got added to the suite that he originally put together in 77 and then updated it in 1980 to include that special edition music. So, But yeah, that was the only place where we had gotten it. And then uh, it was always thought to have been recorded in Boston, but then we were finally able to confirm it by getting the tapes and seeing the dates and all that. Right, yes, yes. And he would be back there again for Schindler's List. Uh, I don't think, I mean, you know, for a film soundtrack, I don't think he was back there to record, was he? Uh, Can you recall? Saving Private Ryan was also done there. Yes, in 98. Right. So, so Schindler's List would have been done, right, yeah. probably the, the last, I suppose, what, right. 13 years or so. Right. Uh, Although, uh, you know, we did not find, there no, was no information about the E.T. theme park ride on this tape. We were lucky to find the tape. Oh, right. But it just said so that, that could have been. It just said, it, was, it seemed to be like dubbed at some audio house in Orlando, but there was no other backup information. Universal was obviously determined that they owned it, but we have no idea of where it came from, and John didn't remember. But when Bruce Botnick heard it, he says, this sounds like Boston Symphony Hall to me. So okay. it's possible that that was there well, also. He, it may have even been done at the same time as the Spielberg Williams collaboration album in 90. 1990, right? yes. So it might, have been, right. it might have been done as part of that. True, yeah. So, uh-huh. but we just, uh, I, you know, I'm like, well, you know what? I'm not going to question it. I found it. Nobody else found it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Let's just uh, let's just go with it. He said, "Okay, to having it on there, Universal is okay with it. It's done. We have it." That performance, the uh, closing counters suite, that ten-minute suite on that Spielberg Williams collaboration is his favorite performance of it, um, which is uh, an interesting anecdote there, and uh, it's a wonderful recording. It is, uh, yeah, as you well know. Yes, and, oh, um, yeah. Spielberg has been quoted as saying, "The final twenty-five minutes of Close Encounters." has been the, the hardest thing for him to edit, and, and apparently it still is. And, you know, that, that, the, final, the final 25 minutes for you, what, what, what stands out for you? And did you discover anything while putting this soundtrack together, just in closing mm. for the... I don't know that I did, but I'll tell you a story. When we did the premiere of the 40th anniversary release at the Cinerama Dome in, in Hollywood, uh, I was going to be on a panel afterwards with uh, Michael Kahn, the editor, and Marvin Levy, who's been Stevens publicist since Close Encounters, and Michael Clastron, who I mentioned wrote this great book that came, was coming out right. about the making of Close Encounters, which is a really beautiful book and highly recommended. I just finished it right before I came over. The show was going to start late. It was supposed to be 7.30. Five minutes to eight, they finally got started. Then we had the seven-minute behind-the-scenes thing that preceded the movie, which I was unhappy showed before the film because it kind of gave everything away, but oh well, Sony decided to do that. So it's not till maybe five after eight. It had been a long day for me. I'd been there for a while. I had set up this display in the lobby and did all these things, and and then the movie started playing, and I found it really, really, really super loud and hurting my hearing. Oh dear, right. And I just thought, you know, and the opening scene is loud. Oh yeah. And I just thought, I really don't want to have a headache on this panel. I think... I'm going to just go sit in the green room. So I wasn't there 10 minutes until Marvin Levy came in, and uh, which is a good thing because he thought the movie would have been running for an hour by then, <laughs> but it was only on for 20 minutes. So I was able to at least be with him and talk, and then Michael Kahn comes in, and then so m- my 40th anniversary experience was, uh, and then Clastron came in, was sitting in with the three of them chatting. And, um, and both Marvin and Kahn are New Yorkers like I am. So we were just uh, talking about all this great stuff. and uh, But Michael had said that he never 
watched a movie after he finished working on it. Ever. Ever, ever. Ever. He <laughs> just said, I don't want the baggage. Oh. And so he, isn't, he, had ne- he finishes it, never has looked. Can you imagine it? So he's not gotten to enjoy wow. E.T. or Raiders of the Lost Ark like all the, well, he didn't do E.T., but uh, Raiders or any yeah. of his movies, uh, he's well, never so gotten t- to enjoy it, you know, because he didn't want the baggage. So, But Marvin insisted we all go in and watch the last 35 minutes. And Kyle was like, ah, okay. So, <laughs> so we go, and we're just standing there in the back, and I'm right next to him. And as it plays, I see him start crying. Oh, wow. He was just so moved by it and just so touched by it. And, I mean, again, I, I, so I think that to me is what gave me the new appreciation for it because it just, again, it's like an instinct there. Are we holding this long enough or is that too long? You know, the effects, whatever, you know, all these things to work out. The movie kind of sort of pauses and just sort of you just taking it in. And the music is kind of like your, what what carries you through it. And again, it's like this idea of like just pulling everything else out. We understand it's a story and we know there's a narrative going on, but we're really just reacting to the light and the music. And it's just that pure cinema again. And actually stand there with with the guy for whom this was his first movie with Steven, you know, and has done, what, 28 others, including two that were in post-production at that moment. Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, was a tremendous honor. And uh, boy, did that just make me appreciate the movie even more than I already did. You know, so that whole collaboration of... uh, the three of them, you know, of having the right editor and the right composer all those years and all those films. Mm. It's just like, there it is. It was just right there. Once they put that team together, he just stuck with it. Forever for us to enjoy and appreciate on screen.
before we close, we'll have a quick mention of Superman, which I know is, a, is another favourite of yours, and indeed anyone who appreciates good music, and it's a great film. 40th anniversary, can we look forward to any kind of Superman live in concert? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to come. Do you know anything? Uh, is anything on the horizon? Well, it's 40th anniversary of the film, but 80th anniversary of the character. So it's the 40. Oh, it's a double, so double it's the, shot. So it's the 40 80. Okay. Imagine right. the movie's half the age of the character. <laughs> but there are some conversations, but there are also some hitches and things to work out. Okay. I, so think, I think they're very desirous of having that be done in concert, and it would be great in concert. Oh, fantastic. But yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's uh, coming immediately. Um, I'm hoping that there's a, maybe another new restoration of the film to get that updated. Okay. Um, in 4K. And at the risk of the groans of the film score collectors out there, I wouldn't mind revisiting the music again, dare I say, only because when we did it in 2008, I was working with transfers from 2000, and I would love to retransfer all those tapes and future-proof them. <laughs> so, the, the word of today is so, future proof I know so, so I apologize in advance if that opportunity comes my way it's really for the good of the score and the good of John Williams um, if, if that happens you know, yeah. uh, I'm sorry to make you buy it again if, if the opportunity arises but Superman has a, so many different guises and the, the music we know has, has been dialed in, dialed out so many times. I mean, I, I recently watched that new TV version that Warner Archive released. Right. I believe it's also available on, on iTunes, actually. I just recently found out. And it, look, it was a treat to see. And, you know, some of the restored destruction of Krypton music is great because it was, you know, messily dialed out, as I'm sure you recall. Mm -hmm. um, but there's still a lot of music which is dialed out, like the Planet Krypton suddenly, you know, fades out quickly as well. So... I mean that. Do you, do you did you have any input at all in the the Warner archive? I mean, are you ever kind of called up by these guys saying, "Hey, Mike, what do you think we should do here?" Or is it all very them and us? Or no, that they just found the thirty-five millimeter copy of that that complete version, that TV version, and they just uh, and they and they just went with it as it as it was. Okay, um, because that's what people had wanted all these years was you know. Um, and I think there might be one or two little differences to it. There's one shot that's a little different or something, but uh, but by and large, it's that at least that's what was on their element. Okay. And that's what they cleared to uh, put out, and so that kind of like that was a nice shoe drop for that. After all of these years and people having various copies off the air and everything, you know, <laughs> yes. it was finally nice to actually have that shoe drop and say, okay, we have it. Even though to me, it's more of a curiosity than anything else. Yes, I mean, because it's um, funny because my wife and I, because she's a massive fan, like she watched it every day as a kid. Um, and she, like, yeah, the curiosity of, of seeing all the extra footage, and it's great. And, you know, certainly any excuse to see more of Jeffrey Onsworth photography and that wonderful glowing, uh, the costumes and everything in Krypton. But, uh, and of course, there's more Smallville scenes as well, which, which are wonderful because all those crop fields are so majestic. But she said, and it's a valid point. It's too. It's just too long because you want the film to move quicker, and you know it, it is uh, <laughs> banter fodder to use a Star Wars quote. Well, because we're already waiting an hour to see Superman, <laughs> even in a theatrical version. Yes, yes. So, I mean, notwithstanding the first fly out of the <laughs> fortress until he actually the helicopter scene, we're close to an hour in, right? Yeah, so until now, right. we're going an hour and twenty minutes. So, um, yeah. and you know, uh, we always joke that uh, you know, with that scene with the kids in Smallville driving around, I mean, it's interminable. <laughs> And so when they say, you know, uh, how'd you get here so fast? And he says, I ran. We're like, well, dude, you could have walked. <laughs> so it's like we've been driving for, you know, half yeah. an hour here. So yeah, yeah. Um, just shows you, you know, the, the theatrical cut is to me the right cut. To that. The yes. two, two hour, 23 minute 
version. You know? uh, so you want Foster Richard Donner's recut? No, you, you the, prefer the original? Oh yeah, the yeah. nine minute. No, I don't. And now that we have the three hour ten minute version, I don't think we need the one hundred thirty one minute version. I'm happy with the one the one forty two. Yes, I mean I think that that apart from the one little thing that I did wish had been left in is when he attempts to catch the missile head on. And okay, it goes, chasing and it, rockets. Right, right, right. Because as, as, as a kid, seeing it as a New Yorker, knowing that Metropolis really was just New York with a name change, right? And it's established that the rocket he's chasing is heading east. Uh-huh. Instantly, there's a cut to him being behind it. And I'm like, well, how come he's behind it if it's heading east? Okay. So it needed that geography of trying to catch a head on. It establishes that there's an avoidance system. And then, then he has to nail it from behind. So and and there's also terrible music edit that's there as a result mm. of removing that little thing. Yeah. Other than that, you know, I won't I won't quibble. Other, other than that, it's theatrical cut. It's, uh... well, the, the one the one scene that gets me, uh, I don't think um, works, is the uh, the the leaving home, and you know you have got the Cheerios adverts and the. You know, Martha Kent saying, Clark, get up. And it just. Yeah, don't of, interrupt that beautiful poetic moment there. Doesn't it? Where I we know. Cut, yeah. The cello's I mean, supposed to come in straight in, and, and suddenly. Yeah, and you got this great Andrew Wyeth painting, you know. Ah, uh, totally. You know, with the sun beautiful. coming up and, you know, yes. just the silhouetted figure out in the distance of the field. You know, I mean, the, 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 the brilliant thing about that movie is that it's just anybody who's ever left home can relate to that scene. Mm. You don't have to be a superhero. Yes. I mean, this is about, you know, anybody's telling their parent I'm leaving home uh-huh. you know and it's also the American immigrant story it's a superhero but this is actually the American immigrant story he's come from somewhere else they've set up they've had a farm you know and now the younger generation is moving to the big city you know this is just like you know the growth of America that's why it's such an American myth is because of those elements yes um, and those things that everybody can relate to none yes. of us can relate to having superpowers but we can all relate to that that you know I feel like I have a calling, I have a destiny, and I have to, the time has come for me to leave home. Yeah. You know, it's, this, this is just a timeless thing, and, you know, and Williams scored it and Unsworth shot it like that, like the story of any any young boy about to leave home. So poetic, yeah. So. Yeah. And even the... the and that's just, that was Donner's genius. He captured that. He captured just the, the, the myth um, of Superman, but also just this iconic experience of sort of any of anybody yeah. know, trying to find their way in the world in addition to Onsworth and Williams it's also that wonderful Luma Crane yes I mean, <laughs> that just makes that scene yeah and how um, theatrical it is oh, totally. the moments yeah, like yeah. have endings you yes. know it's like yes. that Smallville scene has an ending yes and yes. Uh, almost like a plot a plot a plot then this Fortress of Solitude has an ending Yes. You know, um, so that's very, very theatrical yeah. film yeah. in in a stage sense. You know? Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. I look yeah. forward to revisiting it. Hopefully you do revisit it in uh, in soundtrack form. And, well, uh, as you know, I mean, I just, I'm, I, I get concerned about the elements. I mean, these are now 40-year-old elements on 35-millimeter mag, uh-huh. last transferred in, you know, eight, it's 17 years ago now. So I worry about their condition. I'm like, well... This is important. This is not some bomb. This is not some flop. You know, um, you know. If we should at least transfer it and archive it, if we can do something else with it, uh, you know, to uh, improve it or um, get it out there to the people who care, then we can do that too. But I at least want to. You know, I would love to get it transferred and archived. 
Mike, thanks so much for ET, Close Encounters, and so much other work. And uh, thanks for your time today. Tim, thank you and for your great show. And it's uh, nice to actually be face to face with you. And uh, this was fun. Yeah. Good man. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Right, cheers, Tom.